Hello! And welcome to the Mrs. Watanabe's favorite podcast edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. We had a mega bank merger this week, which we are not going to talk about. So if you're interested in North Carolina banking institutions, um, maybe go somewhere else for that. I don't know. But actually don't. Stick around here because we had to bump that for even more awesome podcasty content, foremost among which is podcasty content. We are going to talk all about the podcasty content M&A space. Spotify is trying to do amazing things in podcasts and various awesome people in Brooklyn have managed to get rich as a result. So we're all very happy about this. Um, We are going to talk about women in Japan and how much they're working both inside and outside the office and whether that's ever going to change. We are going to talk about savings rates. And did you know that you can actually just keep your money in the bank in a savings account and get like two and a quarter percent on it, which is amazing. And you haven't been doing been able to do that for years. Is this something that you will be able to expect from your local high street bank or not? We're going to talk about that. We are even going to talk about Jeff Bezos and David Pecker in Slate Plus. You're going to want to stick around for that one because Emily is going to make you laugh. <laughs> and um, all of which is coming up on Slate Money. But first I should introduce us, because this is important. In in case you are not a regular listener to the show, I am Felix Salmon of Axios. Emily is... I'm Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. And Anna is... Anna Shemansky. And between the three of us, we are (laughs) Slate Money, I guess. Well done, us. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Emily Peck. Hello. Hello. How much do you think slate money is worth? I think it's worth approximately $10 billion. If anyone wants uh, want out there wants to buy Slate money for $10 billion, we will give it to you at a 90%. <laughs> yes. We will accept a, a mere $1 billion for it. Um, but uh, it turns out that podcasts or podcasting or something is actually worth money because... Because Spotify... Um, the music company that we all love, or at least I like it, has acquired, has bought Gimlet Media, which is a podcast startup um, that produces a lot of popular shows, including 
uh, one called Startup, um, The Nod, Reply All. Um, This week, Spotify formally announced that it was buying up Gimlet and another company called Anchor. Um, And the rumor was it paid around $230 million for Gimlet. And they're still shopping. They said they're going to spend four or five hundred million dollars on audio related acquisitions Mm -hmm. this year. So I guess that leaves them like maybe 150 million to buy us. Something like that. That's fine. We'll take it. The only problem is we don't own it. But I think we should take a cut for formally advertising it on the podcast. We should take we should take like a finder's fee or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We can do that, guys. Hi, Spotify. I do believe, interestingly, I think that one of the shareholders in Gimlet was Graham Holdings, who owns Panoply and Slate. So that's the thing. So, you know, in a way, that's just proof that, like, everything we're doing is, is awesome and genius. But it's it does seem like it wasn't, you know, a standard kind of we're buying this on a revenue of earnings kind of deal. No, because I guess podcast industry revenue, the estimate is around $300 million right now. So if you just like me, an amateur <laughs> mathematician, you could say, hmm, right. that yeah. seems like a lot of money just for one podcast company. But Spotify is really betting that podcasts are going to get bigger and bigger for it and be a good way to attract listeners. Yeah. And I think that's that's really it, is that they want to become like the the place you go for audio content. And right now, when people are going for their podcast, they're not going to Spotify. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea is when people listen to podcasts, they tend to spend more time on whatever platform they're using. So the idea is you will get more people in and then they will use the other content. You can maybe start charging them. So I think that's really the idea. And and to be clear, a couple of years ago, it was totally true that people didn't listen to podcasts on Spotify. But per Gimlet, I don't. I haven't seen the numbers here at Slate Money because no one tells me anything. But um, at Gimlet, they say that now about twenty percent of their shows are streamed via Spotify, and that's up from basically nothing. And it makes it easily the second biggest platform um, after, of course, Apple Podcasts being the top. Um, but Apple Podcasts really only streams on iPhones. Yeah, and um, another thing I was thinking was. Interesting. Oh, and also something I learned in reading about this this week was that there are 600,000 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, according to one. That's just an extraordinary number of podcasts. Although um, the vast majority of them have like 200. Yes, yeah, like listeners. one guy in his basement or something, but still. It's a number which is going to grow quite fast, I think, if Anchor does what it says it's going to do, because the Anchor acquisition in many ways is more interesting than the Gimlet acquisition. Um, because they're not buying any kind of professionally produced content there. What they're buying is a really easy way of people making their own podcasts. And the idea that podcasting is the new blogging and that it's like a fun way to be able to communicate to what can be a relatively small and niche audience, and that's fine, and not everyone needs to be chasing scale, I think is a really interesting one. Oh, I was thinking that the Spotify deal signifies that sort of this is the end of podcast as blogging. This is sort of the end of the open era because Spotify and like will, you know, start producing a few exclusive podcasts, kind of like a Netflix model. We'll do more of that. Um, And, you know, there's going to be sort of a star system. Spotify already has a few very famous people doing podcasts. So soon it's just going to be like these very well-produced, fancy podcasts that most people listen to. And then, you know, 
just the little peasants producing their own ones that you know their mom listens well, to. Well, I think I think there's a barbell strategy here, which which makes sense. I think you're right that the big hit podcasts are going to come come along every so often. There's going to be a serial or a slow burn or something, and people will you know it'll it'll catch fire and mm. people will listen to it. Um, but it's hard to build a business around those because you never really know which ones are going to be big hits so that it's hard to sort of sell them in advance ad t- technology is improving a bit but i also think that spotify in particular is has proved that audio is not necessarily a hits business the wonder of spotify the reason why people love spotify is because it is the natural home of the long tail and that you can wake up one morning you know as i often do sort of deciding that you really want to listen to some obscure you know, banned from the 1970s. And it's there. And it's so easy to do that. You don't need to buy anything. And the and if they can sort of extend that kind of discovery mechanism to podcasts, then I think the ability of small amateur podcasters to reach a small but meaningful audience, I think, is can only get bigger. Well, I mean, I do think it can work in two different ways because I think you're right that on Spotify you do have the ability to find pretty much anything you want. But if you actually look at what people actually listen to on Spotify, it tends to be consolidated in a pretty small group of singers. Or, or um, I, th- I think I think that's not true. I think that I mean it, there's always an eighty twenty rule like for for any kind of service that you get you know eighty percent of the listening will come from twenty percent of the songs or whatever. But like. You know, 20% of the songs is a large number. And the other 20%, when you're talking about the amount of listening that goes on on Spotify, is a very, very large number. And a really common use case on Spotify is people either listening to other people's playlists or people just letting Spotify's own algorithm determine what's going to play next. In both cases, you wind up listening to unfamiliar music you might not have heard before much more than you would you know, in the olden days of when you had to go out and buy CDs. I do like the idea of Spotify algorithm finding podcasts for me that I really might like that I never would have heard of otherwise. I don't know if Apple's podcast app has that sophisticated of an algorithm where it's surfacing ones no, it really like doesn't. that. I mean, it tells you like you might like these other things, yeah. but it's... But Spotify's technology is really good in that regard and finding songs that I really like or, you know, I mean, my guess totally is it's tailored going, to you. Sorry. My guess is it is going to create some bigger hit podcasts. And that could, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, even if you do have a lot of people who are only listening to these four shows, if that, if they had not listened to podcasts before, it's also possible that then maybe they're willing to try one other one. You're trying, you're starting to get more people into podcasting because you just, podcasting is still a medium that is relatively small. It's still not a huge percentage of the population that listen to, listens to podcasts. And and a huge, and, and Spotify is making big inroads into you know, cars. It already is big in cars and cars are where people generally listen to that. One of the main areas where people listen to podcasts in a way that like Apple podcasts might not be, especially if you don't have an iPhone. Um, I think there is a huge amount of potential growth in this industry. And one of the things which I keep on thinking about is a couple of um, acquisitions. Media acquisitions are generally disastrous for the acquirer. You know, like just buying anything in in media is is generally a bad idea. Um, But if you look back, um, there's, there were two acquisitions, two media acquisitions in particular, which turned out to be absolutely genius and unbelievably successful. Um, one of them 
is Google buying YouTube, and the other one is Amazon buying Audible. And those are platform acquisitions, yes, not media see, acquisitions. And I see this in a similar way. Well, Audible was not dissimilar to Gimlet in its own way. It owned a bunch of IP. Um, and both of them, after making those acquisitions, basically said, we are not going to run you as a sort of self-contained internal business which needs to make a profit internally. So much as what we're going to do is build you into our ecosystem and strengthen our entire ecosystem um, through owning you and and be perfectly happy to throw huge amounts of money at you if that's going to help our broader ecosystem. And I think Audible is a good example because we're in the publishing industry where you're seeing growth is in audiobooks. People thought it was going to be ebooks, but it turns out people, in fact, like listening to their reading content. And so, yeah, and so Amazon has this huge, like, almost unassailable um, position in audiobooks now. Like, it, it can't, Spotify can't really compete on audiobooks. But they can compete on podcasts, partly because podcasts are sort of open, they're free. Um, Gimlet has said, or Spotify has said, that all of the existing Gimlet shows, which are, you know, open and free to everyone, will remain open and free mm-hmm. to everyone. Um, but Gimlet has made a show already in the past for Spotify called Mogul, mm-hmm. and which is only available on Spotify. And that actually is also a, a huge opportunity in that things like music rights, which are a nightmare if you're trying to just do an open podcast, which is free to anyone, come much, much easier if you're limited to just being listened to on Spotify. I mean, podcasts, generally speaking, are cheaper a cheaper business than the music business. And that's, I think, another reason they want to get deeper into it. Yeah, and definitely cheaper than the video business, which they tried to get into. Right. It did not work very well. Right. But, but again, because they, yeah, they were they were finding it very hard to have, like, their own IP. If you buy Gimlet, it's possible. And so, well, any, in any case, like, we, we should just say, like, super many congratulations to, to Matt Lieber and Alex, Alex Bloomberg and the whole team over there at Gimlet who are awesome people. We've had Alex... Bloomberg on this show in the past, who's lovely, and I think he made the um, the best ever ad read that we've ever had on Slate Money. We'll link to that show in the show notes. This is the one time that you you actually want to listen to the ad. I was trying to. <laughs> it was back in the days when we would literally just read the ads in the middle of the taping the show because we wanted it to be like organic and, you, and this was before dynamic ad insertion and that kind of stuff and so I kind of paused the show and started trying to read an ad and Alex was so embarrassed for me <laughs> that he was like stop it stop it let me let me do this one for you and he was so good everyone should listen to season one of startup where yes. he goes through the painful process of raising money for Gimlet it's it's really cool that we we were given such an inside view of how he created this company and now he's selling the company I for all cannot, this much money. I cannot wait for the next season of Startup which will cover the sale of Gimlet. Yes. Apparently Alex was like recording everything yes. all oh, along cool. the time and so the one question which I want to know is um, I'm sure he'll have Chris Sacker on the show who was one of the very early investors mm-hmm. and who he was talking to from basically episode one of Startup. I really want to know what Chris Sacker's advice was. Was he like, <laughs> yeah, sell. Because the reason to sell, I mean, even though this this makes a lot of strategic sense from the point of view of Spotify, it also makes sense from the point of view of Gimlet. Number one, like you can just get a bunch of cash from Spotify, which it would be very hard to raise in any other way normally. But number two, if you're just trying to run this as a self-contained business, you know, not, not only are you more sort of cash constrained in terms of your operating budget, but 
shit can go wrong. And, you know, I know people who have started, you know, $200 million media businesses, which have then gone to zero. <coughs> Denton, you know, it's possible. <laughs> Especially yes. nowadays. It's very, very, it's in fact likely. And and they're such a creative business. And, and it seems like it would be such a relief to have just the security of a big cash cow owner, you know, yeah. if you trusted that Not owner. to mention the security of making like a few million yes. bucks for yourself. That seems Not quite, so quite yeah. secure. Well done. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Mrs. Watanabe has a job, it turns out. Um, when I was um, a young, just fresh out of university financial journalist, I learned that the most important bond investor in the world was this legendary woman called Mrs. Watanabe, um, who was basically the shorthand for Japanese retail. And the way that it always worked in um, Japan was that the man in the household would go off to work and work huge hours and then go out drinking all night. And then the woman of the household was like, she had a full-time job looking after the household, looking after the kids, doing all of the meals, and also doing all of the household finances. And the household finances were always invested in like reverse dual currency bonds and all of these like crazy exotic things. And and so like the entire sort of household finance sector of, of Japan was legendarily like A, very rich, and B, run by these, these, these formidable Japanese... Um, stay-at-home moms, who had a huge job on their plate. But then it turns out, in the decades since I was a fledgling um, financial journalist, a huge change has happened in Japan, which is that these stay-at-home moms are no longer stay-at-home moms. They all have jobs now. The female labor force participation rate in Japan is significantly higher than it is in the U.S. or pretty much any other country in the world. Not sure about that. (laughs) Well, certainly the U.S. It, it is definitely it, it is higher than the U.S., but not um, the Nordic countries, I think. And I don't. France, I think, is higher. Um, I'm not sure about France, but in any no, case, France it's, is it's very high. And the and it's an interesting question. Um, number one, why that happened, but number two, how that managed to happen without any change to the idea that the women in Japan should continue to do all of the finances and the household chores and looking after the kid and making all the lunch and all the rest of it. It's kind of amazing. Well, I I do think it's important to point out when you talk about the female labor force participation rate that you have a lot of women who are in part-time and irregular work and relatively low-paid work. So although it is definitely a good thing and we can get into womanomics and all of that and why you are seeing more women in the workforce, there are still a lot of issues. Before we get into all of the issues, we should say we're talking about this today because the New York Times ran an excellent feature story on these poor Japanese working women who are now 
participating and have jobs and they're in the workforce in record numbers, but at the same time are doing uh, 95% of the work of running a household and raising kids. And I mean, the New York Times story was like excruciating to read. Um, there are these women working 49 hours a week who also, on top of that, do 25 hours worth of um, household work and chores compared to their partners who are doing less than five hours of chores and household tasks at home. I mean, it was like brutal. It was pretty brutal to read. Um, the one the one woman who she waited and let two subway cars pass and, and the text of the New York Times piece says something like, and that was her only break for the day. <laughs> Although the only thing I would like to say, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I think we're all going to agree that this is a system that makes very little sense. But, but the contrarian take is coming. Like, yes, I can feel yes, it. Well, no, all I'm saying is that if you look at the number of hours that Japanese men work, it's a little bit more understandable when you're working potentially 80, 100 hours of overtime a week while you're not going to be work, oh, doing a yeah. tremendous amount at home. Yeah, I mean, it was clear from the piece that um, it, it was a really good piece in that it described all the different ways that work culture and home culture are broken in the country. And and a lot of the trends aren't dissimilar to what happens in the United States, although I think for Japanese men, the work culture is more maybe more oh, gru- yeah. definitely more grueling than here. But it's like in the workplace, men are expected to work like for all the day long and and be out all the night long. Women are not expected to work that much. In fact, one woman in the piece said when she got pregnant, she was just put part-time at, at her job. Or when she got married, she was put part-time because they're like, oh, you won't have time for a job. So it's like the expe- expectations for men is work all the time at the office. The expectation for women is like, mm, ratchet it down. But also they're being told, you know, womanomics, you got to work also. So that's kind of confusing. And then the expectation at home, there are no expectations that the fathers do anything. And the mothers according to this piece, um, have like crazy high um, expectations for what they have to do for their children and their family, like cooking dinners that are like six, six different um, kinds of food in the dinner. Like that's crazy. Like working moms Even in the U.S. Even lunches have like, yeah, that was yeah, insane. Yeah, lunches. Like beautiful lunch boxes and, and things like incredibly low penetration of dishwashers. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And like um, the nursery school telling her she has to keep a detailed log of her three and four year olds day to the to the point of like, when do they sleep? How long do they sleep? Like, what did they eat? And like, so she's up late at night, like writing down in a journal what her like four year old did that day. And actually crazy. It's interesting because there's (laughs) there's really a parallel in a lot of Japanese work culture as well, where you just have like endless bureaucracy and meetings and meaningless tasks mm-hmm. that people are forced to do. And it's part of the reason that you that people are working such long hours. Now, the other reason people are working such long hours is because they have a labor shortage and they won't allow immigrants in. And that is part of the reason why, because they've had stagnating growth, they can't get inflation up. They have wanted to increase the female labor force participation. I mean, granted, this is what every country should be doing because that's a very nice way to stimulate growth. And so I just want to the only thing I want to say is that we are seeing some improvements. I I, I agree that obviously we're not seeing nearly enough, but some of the things that have been done are increasing the openings at daycare facilities, making paid leave pay a bit more. Also decreasing some tax penalties they used to have on when women did work. So these are things that do appear to be helping. But I think there is a larger problem of the work culture. And it, it's not just a woman problem. It's a woman and a man problem. Mm-hmm, exactly. Except, I mean, one of, this is one of the few articles where it's kind of illuminating to read the comments. Because what you find is 
a huge number of Japanese women basically saying, yes, there's, you know, shit is fucked up. And um, <laughs> it's it's really bad, the, the situation that Japanese women found, find themselves in. And a deafening silence from Japanese men saying anything like that. What you are not hearing is any Japanese men going, I would love to do some more housework and not go out drinking all night, or I'm working too hard, or like I want more sex equality. Like That just isn't there. You don't hear that from Japanese men. Well, although I would say, one, the people who are reading that article are much more likely to be Japanese women, I would probably say. And also, I don't know, I'm just defending men here, but like... <laughs> The, the, you no, know, never defend men. It's just like it's a thankless. But I'm saying like the thing. going out They're and drink, drinking and carousing is not something that most people enjoy doing. It's something that is literally part of the job that you are required to do. And I think that if we want to fix this, the part of fixing it is really just changing overall the a lot of these cultural norms like having companies spend a bit more of their cash reserves uh, so you can have higher, you know, more tech so that people don't have to spend all of these hours. You could also, I mean, there are a number of things that could be done to make life better for everyone. And I think that would definitely help women. But I think if you don't do that, I don't really see how this changes. And I just, I just think that the entrenched sexism in the Japanese workplace and in Japanese culture just more generally has been changing glacially and there's no indication that that's going to speed up anytime soon. I think it's and it's really hard to change and I think there is this uh, an overemphasis on changing things for women that we see in the US to like making work easier for women or more paid leave which is really important um, but less emphasis on yeah on changing things for men some of the things you just suggested but also like like really how do you change sexist culture it's really that's a hard one. <laughs> I think no one's really figured it out that that well. Um, but getting more women in the workforce is definitely a first a first step because these women are. I mean, you can't live like that for very long. I don't think. And, and last thing I will say, because breaking this is a problem. You're trying to figure out like how things are going to change. Is also getting more women in leadership roles, both in companies and in government. I mean, that's one area where Japan really is like um, ranks very mm-hmm. very low is in participation in government. And if you're thinking about policies and, and, and these major decisions that are being made, women are not at the table. Mm-hmm. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. The savings rate. Is high, or at least higher, or at least like The interest rate on, on savings accounts. If you, so we, you don't need to do weird reverse dual currency bonds like Mrs. Watanabe used to have to do in order because that was okay that was part of the problem right was that Japanese interest rates were at zero even then and so the Japanese housewives were trying to find like some place to they find yield they were searching for yield they were searching for <laughs> yield um, that never really happened in America because America is a, is a, it has a culture of investing in stocks rather than bonds um, but the fact is that if you just put money in a savings account now, there's no shortage of savings accounts out there which pay something with a two at the front of it. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> so it, if you're looking at accounts at 
small banks that are, that also are much more likely to have a requirement that you have like $25,000 plus in your account, then yes, maybe you're getting those rates. Now, I know to us, $25,000 in the bank might not seem like a lot, but to a lot it's of people, a lot. that's a lot. But and no, but I'm saying there's, well, there's definitely- a small bank I looked up called Goldman Sachs, yeah. and they offer 2.25%. And with no minimum balance. online. Yeah, because- but it's, it's no minimum balance, or there's, yeah, or there's to. You know, there's a small bank bank I looked up called BBVA, the, the Spanish banking giant. They mm-hmm. own Simple. Simple's offering two percent on their savings product. It's like These accounts I mean, are out there. Yes, it's yes, not every they're bank. They're either small or online banks, where because basically partly you're trading convenience for a higher rate. Mm. But it's. I mean, I'm I'm not entirely clear why it's convenient to have a savings account at a at the branch next to you. The whole point about a savings branch is you just put your money somewhere and forget well, about it. Well, people have a savings account and a checking account and their mortgage and they like it all to be together and they like to have access to other products and to be able to deposit checks. And there's a reason that big banks don't have to pay anything in savings. So, okay. So what we have right now is an interesting sort of bifurcation. The For many, many years, no one was paying any interest on savings. Um, it was just like, if you wanted 0.5%, you needed to lock up your money for three years in a CD or some horrible thing like that. Um, and there was a good reason why no one was paying any interest in savings because there was just that interest rates were at zero. And that's what happens when interest rates were at zero. Their interest rates were at zero. And then interest rates started to rise. And now we have, as we were talking about, there's any number of banks, many of them online, which are offering genuinely reasonably attractive to two and a quarter percent style, um, in savings rates, there's one which was talking about like 2.8%, although it did come with various bells and whistles and requirements. Um, the Meanwhile, the rest of the banking industry, as, you're, as you've rightly said, has not caught up. And the, if you just have you know, a savings account at JP Morgan or Citibank or Wells Fargo or Bank of America, you're not earning 2% on that. Well, and there's no reason for them immediately that they would want to catch up. Yeah. And the, I think the reason we're talking about this in part was because there was a piece in the Washington Post where um, some people had savings accounts, I think it's City, and um, the bank then created a new product, a new savings product with a higher interest rate, but didn't tell the ones that were sitting with the product with the lower interest rate. Um, so it's like if you're stuck with savings, if you have your whole financial universe at one of these big banks you might not be losing out on the new well, interest that, rates. That, actually, that yeah. wasn't it. Wasn't City. It was CIT. And the CIT, only reason I, I say you. this is because there are differences. There are huge differences no, in size. D- and please correct me. No, I, and and I just would say it, it may seem like, well, why why is the bank doing this? But it's like, right, you're a funding cost. Like they're mm-hmm. not going to increase their funding costs if they don't have to. Well, right? so I I so that's again like this whole idea of, you know, are we all in a adversarial relationship with our bank yes where where you know the bank <laughs> sort of it's a zero-sum game and and either they pay me money and interest or they don't and if they don't they get to keep the money and if they do then i get to keep the money and it's a big tug of war and we have to stay alert and we need to be on top of this shit and it's um and i feel like you know the reason why people don't like banks is because they really do feel like they're in an adversarial relationship especially if they wind up getting with hit with fees on their checking account and that kind of thing and um, and that's k- 
kind of unhealthy, and I would love to see that go away. And I think one of the ways that that can start going away is if banks become slightly more proactive about saying, "Look, you know, this is a savings account. We should pay some interest." Wait, no, no, no. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree a little bit here. Okay, because like banks, especially if you look at large banks, the compression in their net interest margin was significant in the years following the financial crisis. It was actually uh, more significant than at smaller banks. And so it makes sense that as rates are increasing, they're going to try to make up for that somewhat. And also, they don't know what's going to happen long term with rates. And actually, if you kind of look at a lot of people's estimates, like no one thinks we're going to have high rates for a significantly long period of time. So you don't want to get locked in to a higher rate. But there's nothing locked in about these savings. That's the whole point about savings accounts is that they pay the interest rate they pay today, today. And to pay tomorrow, the bank reserves every right to reduce that interest rate as much as it likes. This is exactly the game that all banks have been pay- playing for decades is they bring you in with a headline interest rate, which looks really high, with a brand new product saying, oh, we pay like a gazillion percent. And everyone goes, that's great. I can earn a gazillion percent. And they move their money over. And then three weeks later, once the ad campaign finishes, they just bring that gazillion percent down to like 0.1. And no one notices. And they start a new campaign for a slightly different product offering a gazillion percent, which they then bring down to 0.1. It's a horrible game. And it breeds mistrust in the industry. And I, if I believed for a second that the banks would feel locked in for offering a 2% savings rate, and that they would feel like they should only do that if they can commit to keeping it there for years to come, then I might have some sympathy for your argument. But clearly, they don't. I I have a nice bank account, and they raise the interest rate on my savings. I have my money, you know, some money in savings, and when the interest rate goes up, they raise the interest rate on my savings account. And you know what it is now? Super nice. No, well, I'm like not saying 2. like point two five. Two point two five. That's great. That's yeah. like Goldman Sachs levels. Yeah. Yeah. So- Wait, are you with Goldman Sachs? <laughs> no. <laughs> and if you look at most banks, they are they have been increasing the rates. It's just the level of are they increasing the rates at the level people want. And that, I think, well, for larger banks, there's no reason for pe- for them to do that because people are actually just statistically pretty price insensitive. And so they're not going to pull their money out. So there's no reason for the bank to do that. That is another another thing with banks. They're very sticky, right? Like once, especially if you have a checking account with direct deposit, you're not go. I'm not going anywhere. You know, it's just it's too much of a pain. And now you have all these other automatic payments coming out of your um out of, yeah, your, checking, out of your no, accounts. It's, and, it's really hard. I remember during Occupy Wall Street when there was that mm, move your move money your campaign money. and about eight people moved their money. No it's one wants to move their so money. so hard to change your bank. It's, it's, it's just an absolute nightmare. It's up there with like changing address, the mm-hmm. number of things you need to change. Um, the point is that savings accounts are not like that. And that, for instance, something like Marcus, which is the Goldman Sachs product, doesn't even have a checking account. Mm-hmm. Even if you wanted to... to have them as your main banking relationship. You couldn't. But if well, I, this is, I mean, that's true if you are affluent enough to just put your money in savings and not need it. But like, I think it's like 40% of Americans don't even have $1,000 saved for an emergency. That's, and most Americans don't save like anything. Right. So Exc- they can't have a separate, you know, they can't have that Goldman account because they need the money. You know, they're constantly going to need right, the but money. That, but these people aren't people with savings accounts anyway. But that, and that's also... 
separately maybe a, a separate problem to talk about was which is why most most Americans don't have well, I mean, what, what, spend I'm going to take the opportunity here to ask a sort of big philosophical question, um, which I've been pondering for about 20 years, and I've never really worked the answer out to, which is why do savings accounts exist? Like as a product, they seem like a really weird product in many ways. Um, if you have a credit balance at the bank and the bank pays interest on the money you have at the bank, they should just pay interest on the money you have at the bank. Why do they pay different interests, interest rates according to whether it's in a checking account or a savings account? Why don't they just have one account which pays interest and is your checking account? Isn't the savings account cheaper to maintain and the idea is well, that I mean, the money you, will stay but there? But the idea well, is you have, a, you have a checking account anyway. So you're, whatever, even if the cost of maintaining it is low, it's still on top of the cost of having a checking account. So if you just got rid of it and only had a checking account, it would be cheaper for the bank. Um, but I think there's something very elemental about savings accounts. I mean, from the time, what, you're like five years old, your parents are telling you to save your pennies and you get a you get a piggy bank. And there's just something very basic and not complicated about the idea of like putting away some money for a rainy day, right? Or is Right. And so there is a psychological <laughs> reason why people want a separated account. Mm-hmm. If they see... $25,000 in their checking account, they're rich. If they see $500 in their checking account and then they have $25,000 in a savings account, which is off to one side and it's less visible to them, then they don't feel so rich and they're more likely to budget sensibly. So there are sort of psychological behavioral reasons why savings accounts make sense. Yes. And Americans should save more. Yes. <laughs> Although whether saving and, and savings accounts are actually a relatively good vehicle for doing that because they're incredibly liquid. Um, the money's there if you need it. It's kind of out of sight if you don't need it. Um, you're not going to lose money on your investment. It's all FDIC insured. You know, it's a very safe place to keep um, small amounts of smallish amounts of money for people who don't have the risk profile for investing in like stocks and bonds. Let's have a numbers round. Anna, do you have a number? I do. It is one euro and 20 cents. Okay. So this is the annual interest paid on the oldest paying government debt that is still in existence. It's in France. And there it, it's a basically this, this very, very old debt that started as an annuity in like pre-revolutionary France. And it was paid to this lawyer from this aristocrat. And then his lands were seized by the government. And so somehow this got onto the government's balance sheet. And then for some reason, Napoleon decided to cement it into law. So to this day, technically, they still owe, they still have to pay out the interest on this debt. Now, because of devaluation and um, inflation, it's obviously not yielding very much. <laughs> but I just thought it was kind of interesting. And the people who technically think that they are the ones who should be getting it they're like doing the math and they're like it makes no sense like if, if it will cost us far more to prove that we should actually be getting this money than we would um than we would actually get from the bond do they do they have like a physical piece no of paper? it's not like a bear bond no the well actually though the oldest debt um the or the oldest debt is actually a bear bond it's a dutch like water authority bond from like 1645 or something that's actually like on goat skin that's nice. like i think yale owns that Wild. still pays out still pays out yeah. Amazing. Yeah, consoles. We love well, well, one day we'll have a whole segment on consoles because they're amazing things. Um Emily, what's your number? My number is ten dollars. 
that is the guaranteed um, payment per job that's supposed to be given to people who work for Instacart. Um, but there was this really interesting story in BuzzFeed this week. Um, so these Instacart workers, they do their work, they drop off your delivery, and then they get a tip. And the company was using the tip money to top off their $10 an hour guarantee. So like instead of getting $10 plus, plus a tip, yeah. right. you would just get the $10. Um, and as I was coming in um, to these Brooklyn offices to slate money, I read that Amazon, which um, they outsource um, some Amazon Flex. It's sort of like their own Instacart kind of a thing. They're having a, a, they're doing a similar practice. Um, so I guess after the, the reporting came out, Instacart said it would stop. But I thought it was just really sad that they would use the tip to pay the, the workers. Poor gig economy. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really torn on my number. I think I'm not going to do a bank merger number because bank mergers are boring. I'm going to do a Brexit number, which is 17%. Um, 17% is the approval rating for Jeremy Corbyn who's the leader of the opposition in um, in the United Kingdom. And it's kind of amazing. I mean, that's like half the level of even Theresa May, who's managed to bollocks up Brexit, like, <laughs> you know, anything which can go wrong has go wrong, gone wrong. She lost the biggest vote that the government has ever lost in parliamentary history in the UK. And parliament has a long history in the UK. And the idea that in the face of that kind of incompetence, the leader of the opposition would be even less popular and is is kind of mind-boggling and it just shows you how fucked Britain is. Yeah. Also, read some Jeremy Corbyn speeches over the years and you might also know why that could be. No, because it it this is orthogonal. Like the Jeremy Corbyn speeches have been around forever and he's had high approval ratings, much higher approval ratings like with everyone knowing oh, no. what he stands for. I'm, so I'm, I can guarantee you that the reason why he has a low approval rating has nothing to do with some speech that he gave like 10 years ago about to a bunch of Palestinians. I mean, that that's totally fair. I'm just saying that there are a lot of reasons people don't like Jeremy Corbyn. And they're all Brexit related is my point. Like the reason for the implosion of Jeremy Corbyn's popularity is 100% Brexit. All right. I th um, I think that's it for us this week. Thank you very much for listening to Slate Money. Are we having a plus? Yeah. What's the plus? Uh, oh, it's um, uh, the Jeff Bezos's <gasps> oh. nether regions, I guess. Yes. We're going to have a whole <laughs> plus... We're going to have a whole plus segment on Jeff Bezos's <laughs> nether regions. Um, so I hope you're a Slate Plus listener <laughs> because um, and subscriber because that's going to be awesome. Um, stick around for that. Otherwise, many thanks for listening to Sleep Money this week. Uh, keep the emails coming, sleepmoney at sleep.com. Many thanks to Max Jacobs for producing, and we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. Sleep Money.